Today's readings will be from Acts 14, 1 through 5. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirming, confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There, were, there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Most of us are people of routine. We keep our schedules, we do our jobs, we stay in our own lanes. But sometimes our routines become ruts and we miss God. It takes something big, something extraordinary to get our attention, to wake us up, to make us see beyond ourselves and notice what God is up to. In the book of Acts, we see God do just that, something big and extraordinary. He established and unleashed the church. With just a handful of emboldened eyewitnesses and a story of good news, God forever changed the world. He did more than anyone could have imagined, and he still does today. So don't miss it. Let's open our eyes and see God do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. It was August 24th, 1919, over a hundred years ago. The day was a warm day, and it was a clear day, at least for a while. This was the day that Ray Caldwell put on a Cleveland Indians baseball jersey for the very first time. And everyone in the stands for this baseball game knew that this was an important game for Caldwell. He had started a promising career with the New York Yankees, but then soon found himself at the Boston Red Sox, and then he was waived. And he found one final chance with the Cleveland Indians. Some personal struggles and addictions had derailed his once promising career, and this truly was his final chance to make something of his baseball career. He was a good pitcher. The other players called him Slim. That was his nickname because of his 6'2", 190 frame. And yet he was able to harness all of the energy in that frame to throw a pretty good fastball and he had a decent curveball, but his favorite pitch that was legal back then was the spitball. <laughs> and on this day, he was playing against the Philadelphia Athletics, and he had pitched for eight innings. And in eight innings, he had only given up four hits and one walk, just three more outs to go. And then the clouds began to roll in off Lake Erie. Players and fans were hoping that they could finish the game before the storm got too bad just three more outs to go and they could all go on about their business the game would be over and again they knew how important this game was for Caldwell so he gets up to the mound and he actually gets out the first two batters in the final inning as the sky above him is rumbling and then he took the mound for the to deliver the pitch to the third batter and that's when it happened just as he got set to pitch, a flash from the sky exploded to the middle of the infield. The infielders all felt 
the energy go through their legs and they all ducked for cover. And a few moments later, they kind of stood up and looked around and all of them were okay. Everyone was okay except Caldwell. They looked out to the mound and there he was, lying there, arms stretched out. He was out cold. So they began to approach the mound wondering if he was okay. He had taken a direct hit from the lightning strike. One of the players reached out and touched him and quickly jumped back because he felt the electricity go through his body. And so they all just huddled up around the mound, all wondering the same thing. Is Caldwell alive? I'll answer that question in a few minutes. Don't be Googling up on your phones. I see you. I know you guys. We'll get to that later, but this dramatic story, I think, really serves well as an allegory for life sometimes. We know what it's like to face the storms of life, the unexpected storms sometimes. We know what it's like to be, to be hit with a direct hit that sweeps our feet out from under us, that knocks us to the ground. We know what it's like to feel the pain and the suffering of a fallen world. And as a follower of Jesus in a world that is, it is at the very best indifferent and many times hostile toward Jesus and toward the cause of Christ, we know what it's like to face opposition, to live in a world where you try to live with integrity and faithfulness, and that integrity and faithfulness is often met with injustice and opposition. Maybe you know what it's like to take a direct hit to lose someone, to lose something important to you, a relationship, a dream, a hope, a life. Maybe you know what it's like to wonder, am I going to make it? Or to wonder about someone who you care about, are they going to be okay? You see, one of the things that life teaches us is that there are storms, that life in this world that has fallen, that has not been made new completely by God yet, is filled with suffering and pain and heartache. And sometimes that heartache and pain is because of our faith, and sometimes it is in spite of our faith. You see, experience teaches us something else, and that is that Christians are not exempt from suffering. As much as we hoped and prayed and wanted to be, we know that this world is a fallen place and that we are not always protected from its brokenness. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus, you want to reconsider that? We will have trouble? I mean, think about who Jesus is talking to here. It's not only his closest friends, but these are some of the most influential people in the movement of advancing the cause of Christ. These are going to be the leaders of the church. If anyone deserved to be exempt, if anyone deserved to be protected, wasn't it these guys? But that wasn't the case. And so as we grow in our awareness of who God is and how he works in our world, by looking at how he worked in the first century as recorded in the book of Acts, we see that the witnesses of Christ, that's what he called them, you will be my witnesses. We see these men and women who 
bore witness to the reality of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus didn't always have an easy life, that they faced opposition and persecution, that many times they got knocked down. And so the question isn't, will we get knocked down? Will there be storms? It's how will we respond? What will we do? After getting run out of town in Antioch, Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas, two of these witnesses for Christ, they traveled to a new town, Iconium. And guess what they face there? Guess what is waiting for them in this new place? Opposition. Verse 5 of Acts chapter 14. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it, and they fled to the Lycanionian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So now they're in a new place, Lystra and Derbe. And Paul and Barnabas, they come across a man who is disabled. He never has been able to walk. And the text says that as Paul is teaching and and preaching, he sees this man and he sees faith in this man. And Paul simply says to this man, get up, stand up. And that's what he does. In that moment, having never stood before, the man gathers himself and he stands up. And the text says that he began to walk. My guess is maybe he skipped a little. Maybe he ran a little bit. Maybe even he danced a little bit because he was healed. Well, the crowds who are watching this, they're amazed. They're astonished. And they blurt out in their native language, the gods have come and visited us. They were assuming because they saw this miracle that Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods. Barnabas, they said, was Zeus. And Paul was his spokesperson, Hermes. And they tell the local Zeus priest, hey, we have the gods among us. We need to do something. And so he gets some of the bulls donning wreaths and parades them out to be sacrificed to Paul and Barnabas. Well, probably because they couldn't understand the native dialect. They didn't know, Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was happening, what was going on. And then suddenly they see these bulls being marched through the town or getting ready for a sacrifice and they realize "Uh oh this isn't a barbecue (laughs) this is a worship service and they realize that they aren't just expected to participate in this false false worship service they are the objects of it that people are actually going to make sacrifices to them as though they were gods and so they slam the brakes on this thing verse 14 But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with this, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. I love what Paul does here. He uses this tragic misunderstanding as a teachable moment. He says, why are you going to all this effort 
to bow down to these worthless idols. Those aren't gods. Those aren't deity. There's only one God, the living God. Those things don't have breath and life in them, but God does. And he created you and he created the world and he provides for you and he blesses you and he calls to you and he's made a way for you to draw near to him. He is the one and only God. Well, for this crowd, that's a lot to process. People are so confused. My guess is if you're a Greek God, you want everyone to know you're a Greek God. And now Paul and Barnabas are insisting that they aren't a Greek God. And so the people don't know what to do with that. Some of them had already made up their mind. And it's not surprising if you know the history of this area. You see, I am certain they had heard the story. They had heard the legend. It had been told for generations. When there was actually a visit, as the story goes, by Zeus and Hermes, that they had come in the flesh, and that they went door to door looking for someone to show them hospitality, but everyone rejected them until they finally got to this one old poor couple. This old couple without much, invited them into their home, as the legend has it, and showed them hospitality, gave them their last bit of food, gave them whatever comfort they could provide. And in return, this couple was rewarded greatly, and everyone else in the village was destroyed. And so fast forward, knowing that history, knowing that legend, that story, that fairy tale that was told among the people as truth, Now they see this miracle by these two guys and they think they've come back. They've come back among us. We need to make sure that on our watch this doesn't happen again. So they try to treat them as gods. Meanwhile, remember the hostile crowds of people that Paul and Barnabas left behind? The ones that they left in their wake? At Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium? Well, those people did not go quietly into the night. They were still wanting to do something to quiet, to silence Paul and Barnabas. So they gathered the troops, they lit the torches, and they left to go find them, to hunt them down. Some traveling over 100 miles to find Paul and Barnabas and to finally put a stop to all this Jesus talk. Verse 19, And some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, and they dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Probably weren't expecting that, were you? If this is the first time you've ever heard this story, you're like, whoa, that is a twist, that is a turn that I didn't see coming. One moment, Paul is being treated as though he is deity. (coughs) Excuse me. The very next moment, he's being the target of of rocks and of violence being dragged out of the city because they think he's dead. What a change. They tried to kill Paul. I don't know what happened to Barnabas. I don't know if he stepped aside, if he got out of the way. I don't know if he was also stoned. I don't know if maybe they just targeted Paul because he was the spokesperson. Cut off the head of the snake. But I know Paul was the victim of abuse treated unfairly people with large rocks and hatred in their hearts threw them at Paul to extinguish his life to kill him that was their intent 
They thought he was dead. They dragged him outside the city. And I want you to pause in this moment, knowing what you just heard, and just think for a moment, what if that were me? What if that were me? How would you feel if you were Paul in that moment? You say, I'd feel terrible because I had rocks thrown at me. Yeah, that's right. You'd be in a lot of physical pain, wouldn't you? Maybe these rocks hit you in the head or the torso or the limbs. Maybe you're battered, you're bruised, maybe you're bleeding. Maybe you're coming in and out of consciousness. But as you consider what has just happened, what are you feeling not just physically, but what's going on in your mind and in your heart? My guess is, if you're like me, you'd have a lot of different emotions. You'd be angry. Angry at your attackers. Angry at your assailants. Angry at God, maybe, for not intervening, for not striking them down. You'd be confused. God, why did you help me escape in that last city when they wanted to stone me, but you allowed me to be stoned in this city? Why? That doesn't make sense. You would feel this sense of injustice and unfairness. You would wonder why no one came to your aid. Where was your help? Where was your wingman? Where, was, where were the other brothers and sisters to come and support you and help you? You would feel defeated and discouraged. Is this really worth it? And I didn't sign up for this. When he said we were going to be witnesses, when the Holy Spirit sent me out to share the gospel, I did not know this is what that meant. I'm done with this. I don't know what Paul felt. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he's, his mind was in a place where he could even process things. We read over that so quickly, we don't realize that, that he was on the verge of death. But if that had been me, all of those thoughts and so many more would have been rolling around in my head. And then we get to the next verse. Knowing some of these emotions, because some of you are feeling these right now. Some of you are going through your own storm. You're going through your own time when, when you feel like life has knocked you down. And you feel some of the confusion and the anger and the frustration. You feel some of the injustice. This isn't fair. This isn't right. You feel some of the loneliness. Where are people to help me to prevent these things from happening? Why did God allow this to happen? And so again, it goes back to that question, what do you do with all of that? How do you respond? This next verse in the text it looks like all the other verses in your Bible. It's not highlighted, it's not underlined, it's not bold, but maybe it should be because this next verse is monumental. It's monumental. Look at verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up. He got up and he went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. So what did Paul do? How did he respond? All of these feelings all of this pain, all of this injustice, did he give up? Did he crawl into a hole and feel sorry for himself? Did he go home to reconsider what he'd gotten himself into? No, he simply got back up. And where did he go? He went right back into the city, right back into the place where he almost lost his life because of an angry mob. Can you imagine what the people thought as he began to walk back into the city? And maybe they were helping him, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe those disciples were helping him. Maybe he was walking along. We don't know. But as he's walking 
back into the city, what do you think people thought? We're seeing a ghost. I thought this guy was dead. How's he even walking? Why is he even walking? Why is he coming back here? What is it about this Jesus guy that must be so important that this guy would come back for more? Can you imagine the testimony that came with getting back up? The next day, he and Barnabas, they head out to a new city nearby, 60 miles away. And what do you think they do when they get there? Do you think they learn from their experience? Maybe we better lay low. Maybe we better just kind of keep this Jesus thing on the DL. And, you know, if people want to, to hear about him, maybe we can find out. What do they do? Verse 21. They preach the gospel in that city. And they want a large number of disciples. Then they return to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. They went back to doing the very thing that put them in the crosshairs of the angry mob. They told people about Jesus. Not only that, did you notice where they went? As they gained more and more followers of Christ, they went back to the very places where their lives were threatened. What would cause Paul to continue to jump headfirst into hardship, into persecution, into suffering? It's almost like he had a motto for his life, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's how he lived. That's how he'd eventually die. I don't think it's a coincidence how Luke tells the story. Do you remember the man that Paul healed who stood up? I don't think it's a coincidence that this man who could never stand up before by the power of God is able to stand up and when he does, his life sets in motion all of these events. His life becomes a testimony to the power of God and now we see Paul knocked down, dragged out of the city. And what happens to him? He stands up. He gets up. And his life becomes a powerful testimony to the power of God. I want us to notice a couple of things. As we begin to think about our own lives, as we begin to think about the times when the storms come, the times when life knocks us down, and we have decisions to make, how are we going to view God? How are we going to respond? What are we going to pray? What are we going to do? A couple of things I want us to notice as we apply this. First of all, it is much easier to stand back up when you have support. If you feel like you're standing on your own on an island, it is difficult to stand, isn't it? If you feel like you're the only one who's trying to do the right thing, that's a tough place to find yourself in. Luke was very intentional about pointing out that when Paul was knocked down and literally dragged out, that a group of disciples did what? They gathered around him. They gathered around him to support him. And scholars are, are not sure and they debate, well, was something miraculous happening here? Did they huddle around Paul and then laid hands on him and by the power of God he was healed, he was brought back? I mean, after all, he was almost dead, so was there a miracle there? Or was it just their support, their encouragement? Maybe they rendered medical aid to him. We don't know for sure. But we know they were there. They surrounded him and they supported him. And I think that's one of the messages for us today. That's the kind of community of faith we need to be. 
It's who we want to be. People who are there for our brothers and sisters. People who will surround them and support them. Isn't that what the church should be? Why would Christians ever want to be the ones who knock other Christians down? Why would we ever want to be the ones who discourage brothers and sisters? There's something wrong if that's what we're doing. Because God calls us to be just the opposite. To be a community of faith and love and mercy and forgiveness and strength and support. That we surround each other. That we let the power and the presence of God work in and through us to be a blessing to those who are struggling. That we mourn with those who mourn. And we weep with those who weep. And we celebrate with those who celebrate. Or maybe you find yourself on the other side of that. Maybe you now find yourself knocked down and you need the crowd. You need the huddle up disciples around you to support you. You can't do it alone. Find a caring community that you can walk with, that can walk with you. Life was not intended to be lived on our own. Certainly the church is not a place where we're supposed to be on our own. The second thing I want you to notice is that, and you know this, we all know this, but it's so difficult sometimes, and that is this truth. We are not always protected from pain. I wish that we were. I wish that somehow when we put on Christ in baptism, we became of the, a part of the church that, that suddenly we were insulated that we were insulated from suffering and pain, from sorrow, from injustice. Maybe I wish that. In my lack of wisdom, I say that, and yet God knows all things. He knows how things work together because he is the one working them together, working in all things with our good in mind, but to accomplish his good will. Why did Paul escape a stoning from an angry crowd in one place and not in the next place. I don't know. But I know this. I know that after Paul got back up on his feet and he went on about preaching the message of Jesus in the places that he had already been, people that he had already incited in anger, he told them this in verse 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I don't think he was saying that persecution punches your ticket to heaven. I don't think he was saying that suffering is required before you find favor with God. I think what he was saying is it comes with the territory. It comes with the territory of being a bold witness for Christ, especially in a fallen world. When you demonstrate and you share such a subversive message in a hostile world, don't be surprised don't be surprised if you're treated unfairly. Don't be surprised if you're treated poorly. Don't be surprised if life gets difficult sometimes. But here's the good news. God can also redeem that pain. He can redeem those struggles. And he can use those things. He can use that suffering as a powerful testimony. Don't you think that Paul's message gained power when he got back on his feet and went back to that city, and then went to another city, and then went back to the previous cities, and continued to preach Jesus, because everyone knew what happened to Paul. And they saw his conviction, and they saw his faith. And God used his story 
to have a powerful impact. It's not a mistake that the text tells us, that Luke tells us, right after he gets back up and he goes and preaches, that they gain a large number of followers. God used his story. God used his storm to have an impact on the world. He can do the same thing in your life. And finally, we can't assume that God is inactive when we suffer. Where is God? Where was God when Paul was being stoned, when people were throwing rocks at him, stones at him, as big as they could pick up and hurl at him? Where was God? Was he, was he out of town? Was he busy? Was he on another call? Where was God? You see, we often equate the direct work of God with the direct deliverance of pain and suffering in my life. How do I know if God is working? Because my life is good. And God does provide for us. God provides what we need. God knows we need peace to live in this hostile world. God knows we need forgiveness and salvation. God wants us to have joy. God knows what we need. He provides what we need. And God opens doors and he provides, as Paul says, even for those who don't know God, he provides rich blessings of life and sustenance. But that doesn't mean that's the only way God works. I want you to see what Paul says at the end of this chapter. After he and Barnabas finish up this mission trip and they go back they go back home, they go back to the congregation, and they assemble everyone, and they get up and they do their missions report, and they go through all the slides. Remember those days with all the slides? Missionaries would come back. Well, they do that, maybe not with the slides, but they tell the people about their mission trip. Here's what they say. Here's what Paul says, verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together, and they reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, if I'm giving that mission report, I'm leading with, you won't believe what we went through. In every city we were in, there were angry crowds. There were people who wanted to kill us. They, they kicked us out of town. They, in one town, we actually got stoned, and they dragged us out of the city, and then we had to get back up, and all this happened. And many of us would, because our worldview is centered around us, that would be our perspective. And someone would raise a hand and say, well, wait, I got a question. Was God with you? Was God working? Well, it sure doesn't seem like it, does it? Because look at all those bad things that happen. Because we equate the direct work of God with a direct deliverance of pain and sorrow in our lives. And yet, what does Paul say? He says, let me tell you about all the ways God was working. Let me tell you about all the things that God was doing. Yeah, but Paul, remember what all you went through? Yeah, that's beside the point. In fact, that was a part of what God used to do what he was doing. Because God was working through us. You see, that's the difference. For Paul, it wasn't so much about what God did for them as what he did through them. How do you view the work of God? What is God doing for me? These are the things I pray about. These are the things I want. I will measure the work of God in my life according to how much he does that I pray for and that I want. And Paul says, well, maybe your measuring stick is all wrong. 
maybe you need to look not so much for what God is doing for you as what he's doing through you to have an impact on the world around you. Well, back to Ray Caldwell. He's lying on the mound. Just been struck by lightning. His chest is still smoldering from the direct hit. His teammates gather around him. They're wondering, is he alive? Is he dead? And finally, he begins to groan a little bit and move a little bit. Kind of works his way up on his knees and then finally elevates himself and is able to stand on his feet and everyone is sort of surprised. And his teammates and his managers try to rush him off the field to get some medical help and you know what he says? I got to finish this game. I got one out to go. Somebody give me the ball and point me towards home plate. That's what he said. And everyone's just kind of looking around like, are you serious? This game was important to him. It was a very important game. And so finally, the umpire said, play ball. And he gripped that baseball, and he hurled it to home plate. And thankfully, the batter took a big cut at the first pitch that he threw. And he hit a hard grounder to the third base. And the third baseman couldn't catch it, but he was able to knock it down and pick it up and gather it just in time to throw it to first and get the guy out. Three outs, game over. He did it. Ray Caldwell survived a lightning strike and finished what he had started, a complete game. In this world, you will get knocked down. You will face storms. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But we know that the verse doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. There's more to the verse. There's more to the story. Because he says, take heart, be of good cheer, be encouraged. That's what it means. I have overcome this world. And if we are with Jesus, we too can be overcomers of this world. When you get knocked down, you can get back up. But don't misunderstand my message. Don't understand, misunderstand what I'm saying today. This is not a message about willpower. It's not a message about inner strength. It's not a message about some humanistic pull up yourself by your bootstraps and do better. We are not holding up Paul as the one who is to be elevated in this story. In fact, what did he tell people when they tried to do that? They said, you're a God. He said, no, no, no. I am a human just like you. There's only one God. And so just like Paul redirected people's praise and their mindset from humans to God, that's what we want to do today. Paul is a great inspiring example. But he is not at the center of the good news. Jesus is. And it's because Jesus is who he says he is. And he did what he said he did. It is that reason that gave Paul the strength to stand back up. It wasn't his own strength that enabled him to do that. It was the power and the presence of God. The same is true for you. God still works in this world. God still works in your life. Will you seek him? Will you see him? We've been praying this prayer, and now this series is over. But I hope this prayer won't end. Continue to pray this prayer. 
God, help us dare to imagine what you can do. What you can do, not just for me, but through me. And give me the faith. Give me the spiritual eyes to see when you do it. To acknowledge and to worship and to thank you, God, when I see you. Blessings to you this week. If we can encourage you, let us do that. If we can be that crowd that surrounds you and supports you, let us do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be available to you. They're going to be in the parlor. It's a little room right behind the stage area. You can exit out any of these doors, walk around the the hallway there and, and find them there, ready to encourage you, pray for you, whatever you need. Or you can come down to the front as well. Maybe today you're ready to declare your faith in Jesus, to surrender your life to Jesus, to begin a new life as a new creation coming up out of the waters of baptism with Jesus as your Lord. We would love to celebrate with you today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand together. Sing a simple song.